Good morning. You are now tuned in to the third episode of 90 Degrees, where we give you the right sports betting angles. Today, as our guest, we have Plus EV Analytics, whose name is Matt, but he's famous on Twitter at Plus EV Analytics, and he's the first Canadian we have on the show, and he's an actuary. So he is very famous in the sports betting sphere for using his actuary background for attacking the sports betting markets. Uh, before we get into that, I'm taking the opportunity today to tell you why I like the Canadian Football League, because I'm wearing my Saskatchewan Rough Riders hat right now, <laughs> even though I've never been to Saskatchewan, all right? But there's nine teams, and Saskatchewan Rough Riders are publicly owned, so I paid the $250 Canadian uh, to buy a share. So Canadian You hoser. Foot- What's up? You hoser, you. How's I it going, I eh? hoser. <laughs> So someday I'll go up to Saskatchewan, cash a game. Uh, It won't be like the Argos that have the lowest attendance in the league and are not owned by the community. We have better things to do here in Toronto. We have actual sports teams. So Canadian football, why I love it. So it's nine teams, so it's much easier to follow. And there's much more strategy involved because they have only three downs rather than four. So even though the athletes aren't as good, each play matters more. The field is bigger. You have more players on the field. And betting-wise... Um, I like the fact that there's more two-point conversion attempts because of the 20-yard end zones. And there's a lot of one-pointers known as singles or rouges when teams miss a field goal and the other team doesn't return it or they have a long punt and the other team doesn't return it. So the key numbers don't matter as much in the CFL. So you can get really good value line shopping or in the alternate line markets as well because sometimes... When you buy a point, they're not pricing it the way they should. All right. So that's the Canadian Football League, a short version, why I love it a lot. Now with Plus EV Analytics, first question, Matt, is what inspired you to use your actuary background to attack sports betting? Well, I've always been a kind of a a math geek and a sports fan, and it always kind of came naturally to me. And I've always had this fascination with risk and probabilities, even before I knew the actuarial profession even existed. So when I stumbled upon it, when I was in high school, I, I looked at what these guys are doing. And I'm thinking, hey, this is, this is kind of like gambling. This is kind of like being a bookmaker. You're setting odds. This is great. And, and as I went through the actuarial education, it, it deals a lot with this idea of small sample sizes and what we call credibility theory. So what do you do when you have information? It's not enough information to rely completely upon, but it is some information, which is better than no information, and you want to do something with it. And I think that piece of the actuarial education system that talks about small sample sizes is extremely applicable well outside of of the profession to things like sports betting, where especially in things like the NFL, where the seasons are so short, if you waited for a statistically credible sample size for anything, you would need 500 years of data before you made any any bets at all. So you make the most of what you got. And I think that's what I learned a lot to do in, in my education and something that I love applying to sports betting. Yeah, we're not even going to have 500 years of football, frankly, because in 500 years, they're going to realize how idiotic it is. The lawyers, will, the lawyers will get their hands on it, and that'll be the end of it. It's, uh, yeah, the clock might be ticking on that. I mean, college football is the classic small sample size uh, version of football, because at least in the NFL, you have players 
on teams for a really long time. In college, the teams are constantly changing and the level of competition is much wider than the NFL where there's more parity. Um, so for those 12 game seasons, do you adjust your approach that you use for the NFL for the college football um, games that you bet on? So one thing I have not done much of that's on my list to look at is originating college football. It's just there's just so many markets and so many sports that that no one person can really be good at all of them. And, and so I, I haven't done a lot in the kind of originating numbers for college football. One thing that I have started to work on just recently is uh, some correlated parlay angles for college football. So if you think about size and totals. Um, obviously the, the closer the side and the total get to each other, the more co correlated it would be to lay the points and take the over or take the plus points and, and the under. So doing some research into that, uh, you know, it seems like different books have different thresholds of what they will allow. Uh, called up a friend of mine who is uh, the full dog from the always betting the podcast Banfield group. Great. Listen, great guy. He used to work at bet us. And he said, there's a thing called the, the three times rule where most books, if the total is three times the spread uh, or less, you cannot parlay anything more than three times you can. And, and it's one of those things where it's a, it's a fairly arbitrary threshold. And it's impossible that you know anything 3x or, or lower would be an edge and everything 2.9x would not be. Like this doesn't work like that. It's more of a continuum. So what I've been trying to, to look at is can you find parlays that would be allowed by this 3x rule, but are still um, kind of plus EV. And, and so one of the things you can do is obviously line shopping. So if, if you can get some advantage, but not enough to overcome the big, you can eat into the big by, by finding good numbers. And also my exploration of these correlated sided total parlays in college football have, have led me to the realization that that key numbers becomes a really interesting kind of two-dimensional problem. You have to look at combinations of scores that are more likely. So for example, 31-17 uh, would be a common score in football. So if you can get the, the plus 14 and a half with an under 48 and a half, or if you can get a minus 13 and a half with an over 47 and a half, those are the kinds of things that are legal at most books, but you could probably squeeze out a couple extra points of, of EV by kind of being on the right side of these kind of corner points, these key numbers. So that's what I'm working on now. Still a work in progress. Yeah, that's definitely something I've done in the past before certain books have wised up, taking that good old plus 30 and under 58. Not or too vice easy. versa, <laughs> minus 30 and over 50. You don't need a model for that one. Correct. You don't need a model. But anyways, I did test that out before I did it, uh, because why not? Um, and the great part is this data is all available for free. And any data that isn't available for free, if you learn how to do some scraping, uh, which is something I like doing a bit of, you can find the data on a web page, build a scraper, and put it in spreadsheet form. Um, now, one thing I have noticed with college football is that uh, from getting past data of games, the key numbers for first and second half spreads, pregame spreads, are much different than the full game key numbers. And just by line shopping alone, for example, seven is the most common key number for first and second halves. 11% of the time for first halves, 12% of the time for second halves. 
and you can see a consensus minus seven and one book will have minus six and a half. And, you know, I, that's one thing I love about the Betstamp app on top of doing my own research is I'll put the numbers into the Betstamp app and it'll show me what type of CLV I have uh, as a way of testing against uh, the work I'm doing myself. Oh, absolutely. All these apps, and I'm not just saying this because Betstamp and the Hammer are, are affiliated. I would say the same thing about Spank Odds, Unabated, Don Best, any of these things. I don't even care which one you use. But my number one piece of advice to anyone who is just starting out in sports betting is to line shop, is to open accounts at as many books as possible. Because you could get that big that would be you know four and a half percent usually. You can get it down to 2%, 1%, 0%, really without much effort at all. And then, you know, even if you're no good at handicapping or modeling or whatever else you do, you know, your, your, your losses are going to be much smaller than they would have been if you were betting into one book. All right. So you're in Ontario, which is the new frontier. It's the new New Jersey of sports betting. What type of angles have you found at these new sports books? that you don't think are going to exist for that much longer? Oh, it's been great here in Ontario. Like the, the Ontario rollout, um, I have nothing but good things to say about it. Yeah, there were a couple of little, uh, the KYC at the beginning, some books were a little bit slow on it, but it's relatively small in the grand scheme of things. We have a great selection of books. Um, we have all kinds of markets. The promo offers have uh, shrunk a little bit like they have everywhere else in North America, as the books, I'm sure, realize that they are not getting the return on their investment that they had envisioned. Um, but my favorite thing to do is just look at um, correlated parlays and just see what each book will and will not uh, allow. So I, I found some good ones that are no longer active. So uh, one book in Canada actually would let me parlay live bets in hockey. So the example was, uh, I think it was the Rangers and the Penguins in the playoffs where the Rangers were down 3-2 in the third period. And this book would let me parlay the Rangers to come back and win with the over six and a half. And of course, it's 100% correlation because the only way the Rangers could possibly win is if the number goes over, um, which it did, which they did. And uh, that angle only lasted a God, day or two. I wasn't even betting that much into it. I was still in kind of test and, test and check mode, but uh that got shut down easily. But, you know, for every one of these things that gets shut down, somebody else somewhere in the world makes a mistake. And, and really all it takes is the diligence to just try, try 100 combinations, 98 won't work, but the two that will um, could be quite lucrative. Another book used to let me parlay uh, in the in football, first half tie with second half tie with yes, there will be overtime. So the yes, there will be overtime paid like eight to one. And that was like a free multiplier on what I was getting paid on the on the uh, first and second half tie. That one, I think that was a Super Bowl a couple of years ago. It didn't win, but it's still one of the favorite bets I've made just because it was it was so heavily plus EV because you were adding that 100% correlated uh, overtime leg. My light bulbs in my brain are already going off hearing this because I've already done similar stuff and I'm thinking of new ideas. Now, when you're hitting them on these parlay angles and being plus EV and or winning, do they limit your account right away or do they keep letting you hit other angles before they start putting limits on you? Uh, different books are, are different. I've been limited at uh, probably five or six different books here in Ontario. And I didn't really know what to expect because I hadn't done a lot of offshore betting pre 
legalization in Ontario. Uh, most of my betting, almost all my betting up until then was with the provincial uh, lottery corporations. And, and, you know, they're, they're all cash deals, so they don't limit at all, which is, which is nice. Um, but yeah, different books have been quicker or slower to, to limit me. Some books have limited me on parlays only. Some books, uh, I think DraftKings. The opposite to, of what they limit you on. Yeah, well, they, they they pick something up. So kudos to them. But some books like DraftKings, I'm limited to like 24 bucks across the across the board, even on like NFL sides. So, you know, I, I pe- people get upset about uh, about soft books limiting betters. Yeah. I I think it's part of the game. Like if that if you didn't have this kind of ecosystem. 90 plus percent of books wouldn't even be able to exist at all. So I think being limited is the price you pay for having access to all these books and all these markets. And, you know, if you're, if you know what you're doing, you'll find ways around it that I'm not going to discuss on, on this podcast, but I'm sure a lot of people are, are aware of, and you know, you, you do what you can. Yeah. That would be another podcast with someone with a deepened voice about how to set up beards and all sorts of other accounts. Uh, especially when you look at the study that shows that female betters are much more profitable than male betters, which yeah, well, people suspect uh, is because of bearding. Textbook correlation versus causation, I think, there. But uh, I, I'm also not going to say anything else about that because I don't want to get myself in, uh, in trouble. So what was your first sports betting experience? Oh, boy. I think it was back to when I was uh, probably 12 or 13. Uh, my dad would take me to hockey games at Maple Leaf Gardens. And this was back in the early to mid nineties. And, and so, you know, they had this quasi sports betting product called ProLine here in, uh, in Ontario. And they would publish the, the ProLine odds in the newspaper along in the sports section, along with the standing. So I would read the newspaper every day and I would see these odds and I would say, okay, I, you know, I, I, I want to, I want to see what I can do with this. Not that I was doing anything sharp. I was just a kid. But the whole idea of betting on games was, was really exciting to me. So when my dad would take me to a game, I would beg him to stop at the, the local convenience store on the way downtown and buy a $5 uh, parlay ticket. And I would spend most of the game actually watching the out-of-town scoreboard. Of course, there were no, no phones or anything back then. So your only way of knowing how your bets were doing was to keep an eye on that out-of-town scoreboard that they have on the, on the side of the, the rink. Um, so I would actually spend more time on watching the downtown scoreboard than actually watching the, the lease game. And that was, uh, you know, the, I guess the rest is history. Have you ever thought about leaving your day job and just betting professionally? Uh, have I thought about it? I think about it every day. Uh, I'm not, am I actually going to do it highly unlikely? And, and I think a couple of reasons for that. Um, number one, there is a lot to be said for a stable job, stable income, you know, stable benefits, all of these things that, that a middle-aged suburban dad would be interested in, 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 keeping, uh, in keeping going. But I think even more than that, uh, my worry would be sustainability. I think if I were to leave my job and do this thing full-time, I have no doubts about my ability to make a living for the next five years. The question is what happens after that? So I'm probably a lot older than you, but I was around for the poker boom where Everybody and their mother was playing poker. It was on TV all the time. It was just everywhere until, you know, one day it wasn't and people just moved on. A lot of people happened to move on to sports betting. Um, But I think the lesson is that no matter how hot something is in the moment, 
nothing lasts forever. So there is no guarantee that there will be the liquidity, the markets, the popularity, the, you know, the dumb money in the, in the markets five, 10, 15 years into the future to give me the, the confidence that I could make a living doing this for the next you know, 20, 25 years I have left in my career. And if I were to leave the profession and come back, let's say five, 10 years down the road, I'm not sure how a kind of conservative industry like the insurance industry that I currently work in would, uh, would look at a, a gap on my, re- my resume and they ask me what happened. And I say I was a professional gambler you know, for, for five, 10 years. I don't, I don't know how well that would go over. So I mean, I think- it should, and realistically, it should go over well. It should go over great, but you know, not not everyone thinks the same way that, that you and I do. So uh, a lot of that would be would be out of my control. So for for now and the foreseeable future, I'm trying to do it all. I'm I'm trying to do my day job. I'm trying to do my own betting. I'm trying to do my courses. I'm trying to to, to uh, help you guys out with the hammer, and uh, I'm trying to raise two kids and and uh, and a family here. So I think so far it's been, it's been good, but uh, I, I will say my plate is on the full side these days, but I'm doing what I love. So I don't mind it. So it wouldn't be like leaving your job to start a pizzeria because if the pizzeria fails, no one's going to be like, ew, he started a pizzeria and it failed. Yeah, I still might. Why well, would an actuary just start a pizzeria? They would say, uh, but I, I think there would be uh, a little more respectability to, to something like that than. Because you know as well as I do, Kevin, there's still this stigma in society around, uh, you know, around gambling, no matter how legal it is, you know, just like there is around marijuana use, no matter how legal that is or may be. Um, and it's just societal attitudes don't change overnight. Laws do, but attitudes don't. And I think that uh, for the near future, when I talk to people who are not in this world and I say, hey, I'm a semi-professional gambler even some of them say oh wow that's cool you know show me what you do and, and some of them i can tell they're thinking oh you know this this, this guy is sketchy and and I, I don't know if that will go they'll away. ask do you saying, really make money at it yes so they, they'll, they'll think i'm lying what do you think about the sports books in ontario that are banned from publicly advertising their welcome bonuses yeah it's a bit of a weird rule where i think we're the only place at least in north america that has that rule where you you can't overtly advertise you know 500 welcome bonus or a thousand dollar free bet you know in, in a way it's silly because you know anytime anytime you you try and stop people from doing it they're going to find a way around it so they'll direct you to their website and then their website has welcome bonus. So I, I don't think that type of uh, regulation is overly effective in what it's trying to do. That being said, I don't really mind it because I, I think it, it avoids a lot of the controversy that might happen if you take people who are unfamiliar with this industry and, and tell them something like, you'll get a free bet or you know, you'll get a free $500 because we know that free bets aren't really free. You know, we know that, that you know, bonuses have rollovers. And I just feel like the, the, the more kind of newbies who, who get into this world for the bonuses and the free bets and don't really understand the fine print, you know, they're just asking for complaints and lawsuits and, and, and bad press. So I, I really don't mind that the books are not overtly advertising bonuses, maybe for a different reason than the legislators were, were kind of going for, but uh, I, I don't really mind it. As someone who lives in New Jersey, I think it's great. And I wish we had it here because you have so many people that 
don't know what they're doing in the sports betting field and they hear $500 risk-free or they hear put $5 in, get $200 or whatever. And they're signing up for the sports book for the purpose of making money rather than for the purpose of betting on sports and having some fun. Yeah, I, I think some of the stuff, I'm, I'm not a lawyer, obviously, but some of the stuff to me borderline or borders on, on false and deceptive advertising, especially the phrase risk-free bet. Well, it's not a risk-free bet. If you lose, you will get something that's not a refund, but you know a bet credit that you have to re-bet. And you know, usually you, you lose your principal on that bet credit, just get the winnings. And if you don't know what you're doing, you, you bet, you, know, you, you put your free bet in on a minus 300 favorite, you know, all, all of a sudden you're, you're, you're getting into trouble where you're like, wait a minute. So this is not a risk-free bet. This is not what, what was advertised to me. And, and I, I don't think the industry is doing itself a lot of favors from a, a public interest and, and public credibility point of view with, uh, with, I mean, the offers are fine, but just call them what they are. You say, Hey, make this bet. If you lose it, here's what we're going to do for you. But I think that the phrase risk-free bet really kind of turns my stomach a little bit. I really don't like it. Yeah, I mean, the deposit bonuses are perfectly fine because it's self-explanatory. You put your money in, you get a bonus, you bet with it. And once you bet enough uh, to meet the rollover requirements, you can withdraw. Even that, I mean, some places have have really tough rules around their deposit bonuses. And Caesars Casino is one example that comes to mind where they have this rule where you, you, if you're betting in the casino and you have money in your account and you have pending bonus money, you use the money in your account first and the pending bonus money last. So normally the play with these casino, uh, this casino bonuses is you just, you, you just bet it all. And if you lose it, you lose it. And if you win, then you start kind of working on the rollover. Um, but you can't even do that at, uh, at somewhere like Caesars, they, they, the rules stop. So I think even even bonus money would appear to the uninitiated like, okay, you're going to give me $200. And okay, I, I get you probably won't let me just withdraw it right away because that would be too easy. But, you know, I bet it once and I win, I should be able to withdraw 400 bucks. And that just isn't the case. And I think that's, again, it comes off to me as a bit of a gotcha to people who are not, uh, you know, who don't really know what they're doing in the space. And these are the exact same kinds of people that these sites are trying to attract with these offers. So it just, it, it just comes off as a little bit sleazy to me. It doesn't seem fair to me because they would be quick to give you the bonus money. But the minute they think that you have a pulse, whether you're hitting slow moving lines, whether you're using your brain to hit openers, whether you're only doing player props and you're winning, you know, they'll be quick to limit you. And, you know, there's, you brought up that, sports books, you know, do have a right and it's part of the game to limit people, but there's a certain point where they need to give reasonable bet limits to everybody. Yeah, there's that too. And I've read enough stories of people who have a thousand dollars left to roll over on their bonus and they can only bet 34 cents at a time. And you know, the books say too bad, you know, good, have fun betting 34 cents at a time. I think, I think the industry could benefit from some kind of a code of ethics around that. Something like, Hey, you know, if we, if we limit you to whatever threshold, then, you know, we, we, we waive the right to, to make you roll over your money. We'll just, we'll give you the, your winnings and your bonus just to get rid of you. Um, and it's never going to happen in reality um, because there just, there isn't, there isn't the, the player advocacy that, that there needs to be. But that's, if I, if I ran the world, that's, uh, that's what I would do. Yes, certainly. 
And like DraftKings, you bring up as an example, at least with DraftKings, because uh, they limit me on so much stuff, I bet. If I try to do an NFL side, I never have a problem with a limit if it's the day of. Um, but if it's European basketball, which I slay at, my limits are going to be lower than your limits. <laughs> CFL yeah, as well. That that that's that's life when you're when you're betting into these more uh, obscure markets. You know, Euroleague basketball, <laughs> CFL. They see a guy from New Jersey just pounding on CFL games, and they think, hey, he's either the biggest Saskatchewan Rough Riders fan in the world, or he's got some kind of angle. So I. I I get it. And, and, you know, part of me would think it would be cool to actually be on that side and build the models that would actually profile which betters are sharp. But, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not going to the dark side anytime soon. I mean, I certainly would love to go to the dark side. Uh, I'm not going to rule it out for myself. Now, speaking of obscure sports, since I like to consider myself the king of the obscurity, what obscure sports do you like betting on, if at, any at all? You know, I don't really bet a lot of obscure sports. I've never really looked at EuroLeague basketball or like Asian League golf or anything like that. It's just not, I guess, from my my, my uh, coming up in the, the world of ProLine where they just didn't have markets and I needed these things. So they, they stuck to mainstream markets. That's just kind of what I've spent most of my, uh, my betting career focused on. I, I do have this idea, and it's not nothing betting related, but my wife is a big figure skating fan and sometimes I'll watch these figure skating competitions with her and the judging seems so subjective. And I'm thinking there's gotta be a way to sort of reverse engineer what's going on inside these judges heads. Do they have this subconscious preference for certain costume choices, certain music choices, you know, do they, do they grade better when the music is in a minor key or a major key? There's all kinds of stuff that and the referees. Yeah, <laughs> not the ref, the judges. The, the, the judge, exactly right. They're, they're like the, there's so much subjectivity, and the problem is there's just no no money in it, and there's just no there's not a lot of good data. It take a lot of work, but you know, if I if I won the lottery and could just quit doing all this tomorrow, that would be kind of a fun passion project for me. Is working with uh, you know the Canadian national figure skating team, being their their analytics guy to help them with music choices and things like that. And, program what jumps go in what order i'm sure there's all kinds of, of plus ev decisions that analytics could help them make there but in terms of betting i'm, I'm a pretty boring guy i stick to the more mainstream stuff uh a lot of, a lot of play, player props um but even that would be in mainstream sports so sorry to disappoint you on that one well i figured that'd be the answer because you're trying to get down chunks uh which i always respect uh many of the listeners of podcasts i suspect are putting down bits rather than chunks. So for those of you listeners putting down bits, specialize in something that nobody's specializing in. Now, for these major markets you bet on, are there any obscure things within those markets that you bet on? And if so, what are the most obscure bets that you regularly make? Again, I'm mostly looking for correlated parlays. Um, just again, because I don't have all the time in the world to, to originate, you know, all these markets, all these lines. And there, there are, there are people who do this stuff. Specialization, I think is a, is a big, uh, positive in something like this. So I could spend 5% of my day originating WNBA totals, but I know there's somebody out there spending a hundred percent of their day originating WNBA totals. So no matter how good I am at it, they're always going to be better than it. 
So I, I try and take shortcuts. I try and find correlated parlays. I try and find, well, again, off-market lines. It sounds silly, but it's an easy way to get um, plus EV, but sometimes even neutral EV. Sometimes I, I, I'm, I haven't been jaded yet to the fact where, to the point where I, I, uh, I don't enjoy watching a game where I have money on it. I still do. So if I'm trying to unwind with a beer after a long day of, of work and there's a game on and I can pull up my trusty Betstamp app and find a, a, a market that is zero EV, you know, I'll put a, put, a, put a, a, not a chunk, but a bit on it just to, just to enjoy the game. I think that's something that is underappreciated, that betting for 99% of the population is a source of enjoyment. Doesn't mean you have to pay four and a half points of juice on every dollar you bet. But it does mean that there's certain easy things you can do to, to make that enjoyment a little bit less expensive or even um, free or, or near free sometimes. So that's advice I give to, to new recreational bettors. Like I'm not, I don't have to tell you what to bet. You can bet your favorite teams. You can bet overs only if you like overs. You bet whatever you feel like betting. But at the very least, whatever bet you feel like betting, bet it at the place that is giving you the best line. And, and that alone is enough to get people close enough to zero EV that you know they're not going to lose a lot of money doing something they can enjoy. Yeah, definitely. And if you're in New Jersey, you would really love the profit betting exchange because you lay your bets down and if somebody matches it, you got your bet in. There's no limits but you have to get the liquidity so enough people can match it. And if you win, they only give, take 2% of your winnings out. So if you're doing, it's the plus 100 on spreads and you put a hundred dollars down and you win, you get $98 back instead of $90 and 91 cents. But for money lines, it's been great because I know the value of the point and I can see, okay, if I can get minus 125 when a team is a three point favorite in college football, that's a pretty damn good deal. Uh, and I mean, be like, I don't really have much of an opinion on this game, but I know mathematically it makes sense. Um, I also know that one team, the best uh, price at bet stamp, Wisconsin against Washington State, uh, the best bet stamp price was minus 850. And I got it matched at minus 700. Now they lost, uh, which is a very entertaining way to lose money at minus 700. Uh, but the EV was incredible. And I'm still trying to hit those uh, steep money lines at profit. Yeah. Well, well, the place for betting exchanges or is it just to out there in the weeds? Well, I, I'm, I'm definitely in the minority in this take I'm about to drop um, in, in our little betting community, but I'm not super bullish on the idea of exchanges, at least in the North American market. I think you're always going to have a liquidity problem because there's always going to be a demand for a, a huge menu of, of markets and you're just not going to have enough market makers to satisfy all that demand. I don't think you're going to get recreational betters going and saying, Hey, I'm going to, I'm going to put a, uh, put an offer out there. And you know, if someone accepts it, great. If no one accepts it. I don't get my bet. I don't think that's in the North American psyche to do that. It might be in the European or Australian psyche. It's just not part of, of, of the betting culture here. So that leaves the market making to, to you know, sharps and professional market makers, but then they're going to be competing with each other and there's only so much money to go around and the, the um, exchange has to get their cut as well. I might be wrong on this, but I just don't see a huge future for that model 
um, especially in the U.S. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see it play out. I know in two weeks um, on this show, we're going to have one of the co-founders of Profit Exchange on. So we're going to be able to ask him all about it. I'm able to ask him all about it all the time because he lives two doors down from me. Um, Because all of the uh, sports betting industry people are uh, in this small corner of New Jersey. Yeah, I mean, don't get me wrong. Any innovation is good. And I I wish them all the best. I think it's an interesting model. Um, You know, just like I wish the the circas and pinnacles of the world all the best. And I think they have an interesting model as well. Um, Not necessarily what I would do if I ran a sports book. Um, but you know, more power to them for, for trying different things. So now you mentioned focusing a lot on these correlated parlays. Have you done any work with alternate lines? Um, I haven't done much. So I I have this kind of intuition. It might be wrong, but you know, part of me looks at these alternate lines and say, well, if there's any value here, like it would have been gone by now. Like it's too, any value there would be too easy to spot especially with the tools that are out there now, like the unabated alt-line calculator. Like all you have to do is be some bozo with a laptop and the unabated calculator, and you can find value in these alt-lines. So I, I'm, I, I tend to pass on this kind of lower hanging fruit just because if it was that easy, somebody else would have already done it. Maybe I'm wrong about that. Um, and also, you know, any value there is there, I, I'm going to be fighting with 500 other guys to find it. And I'm not, I don't have time to sit on my computer all day long, kind of waiting for the, the four second window where this thing pops up before everybody else hits it. So I try and, and find stuff that is less obvious for the rest of my friends in the sharp betting community to find. I'm trying to find areas where I have less competition, such as these correlated parlays, where, where they can be um, quite difficult to price. They, they require, in some cases, some more advanced math. And I'm happy to put in the time to build a model for that stuff because I know if I find something, it's going to have a bit more longevity than if I just, you know, if I can price an alternate total on NFL better than anybody else. Well, that's going to catch up to me. There's only a, you know, there's only a limited number of ways you can do that. And there are enough smart people in the world who have either already solved this problem or are working at this minute on solving it. And I, I just I just don't want that much competition. On alternate lines, I do have to disagree a little bit about the science. I think scientifically, there are still values to be found in a lot of these sports that I found. The issue is getting the money down if you're betting at high volumes on these markets, or even if you're betting at low volumes. I mean, a lot of it is if I find a good alt line on an obscure sport, I'm parlaying it with another sport, whether obscure or major, just so they look at my account and think I'm a degenerate and I can keep going. Hey, maybe you're right. Maybe I'm wrong about the whole issue. You know, they, they don't call this 90 degrees because it's for squares. So uh, I'm, I'm learning something too from you. So thanks for that, Kevin. Well, you could form a square with four different 90 degree angles. There's only two of us, so I guess we're good. All right. I'm all about the puns. So for betters in Canada, you can legally use Pinnacle. I can't in North America, in uh, the United States. But, you know, Pinnacle, they're really sharp and they take big limits. And I always look at them to see what's going on, especially with our alt line pricing or their props and what limits they're taking when I compare it to other books or when I'm building my own numbers. So what advice do you have for bettors who don't have access to Pinnacle for making bets themselves uh, for using Pinnacle to beat other sports books? 
Yeah. So even though I have access to Pinnacle, I rarely, if ever, actually bet into them because I have a lot of respect for their numbers. Like, am I good enough to beat Pinnacle? I don't know if I am or not because I've never really tried all that hard. And again, it comes back to return on effort. And there are so many books available to me that are a hundred times more beatable than Pinnacle will ever be. You know, it's just not worth trying to to find you know the 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 one weakness in in if it even exists in, in in Pinnacle system because they are very good. They hire very smart people. They're good at what they do. So I mean, the best use for Pinnacle, in my mind, is as a source of information. And, you know, whatever whatever Pinnacle's number is. Now, of course, there are exceptions. I know on props, they're not the sharpest. You know, I know on some college sports, there are other books that are sharper than them. But you know, the, the same advice goes for any sharp book, whatever the sharpest book is on any given sport at any given time. Those aren't the books you want to bet into. Those are the books you want to use for information and find other books that are less sophisticated whose numbers differ from from those. And again, one one of these projects on my bucket list that I may or may not forget to is to find some kind of, of, a, of a sharp consensus line where if you have 50 books out there with numbers on the same game at the same time, you know, is Pinnacle the sharpest in the market? Maybe yes, maybe no. Maybe they're sharp for some markets, not for others. Maybe they're sharp on game day, but somebody else is sharper, you know, three days before game day. Maybe there are five books that are equally sharp and the average of all of them is sharper than each one individually. I think that the question of, you know, what what is the sharpest possible number and how do you construct that number, I think is an unanswered but really important question. So maybe one day I'll uh, I'll, I'll uh, connect with that stamp or any one of these other guys to, to start building that because I, I think, uh, you know, it's, it's not the worst thing in the world to just say, hey, I'm going to assume Pinnacle is the sharpest market. You, you're not going to go all that wrong doing that. But I've always wondered if there are situations where either some other book is sharper than Pinnacle or some mixture of Pinnacle and some other book or books would be a sharper number than, than Pinnacle alone. And I, I, I haven't found anywhere yet that has answered that question to my satisfaction in terms of, of, of scientific rigor. Um, maybe one day I will. Is there anything that you bet that you can't model or you don't model? Um. I think when when I start when I find off market lines, you, you don't need a model for off market lines. Uh, you know, if you if you find a, a minus six and the market's at minus seven, minus seven and a half, you know, you know that's a good bet. You don't need any model to to do that. I guess you need a, you have a mental model of which books are sharper than others. Um, but really, that's the only place. Uh, if I can either find an off market number or if I can find something that's so obviously plus EV, I don't need a model like your example of a, you know, a minus 30 and an over 50 in, in, in college football. Well, you know, I, I have a model for that and I know it's good, but even if I didn't have a model for that, if I found a book that was allowing it, um, that is something that I would be betting, not necessarily with the model. So your, your obvious, uh, your obvious edges and your off market numbers uh, would be my, my, uh, my answer to what do I bet with no model? Yeah. Or especially, and this doesn't exist anymore, but those Asian baseball leagues that had the juice baseball. So you would occasionally have two and a half and three and a half uh, run lines that you could parlay with the total. And they would price it out just like it's two different games. Wow. There you go. Then they started 
adjusting the pricing, but even when they adjusted it uh, from simulations, I could still occasionally find some values. We, we, we can't call this 90 degrees anymore. These angles are, these are sharp angles. So they're, they're, they're we should we, we should call this thing acute, sharper I mean, than 90 degrees. Luckily at the book where I was betting these, I think I was able to keep my account alive because I would throw in as a third leg, a separate unrelated sport. I think that's an, an art in and of itself is, is okay. It's, it's one thing to find good bets. It's one thing to find places to get them down, but how do you make your bets in a way that makes your account last as long as possible, but also gets as much profit as possible for you? Cause you can, you can bet 10 bucks pop and your account will probably last forever, but there's no, that that's that's not where the where the the money is. So what's the what's the right amount to bet? What's the the right way to parlay, if any? And I, I think that's that's more outside of my area because it's less of a math problem and more of a kind of a, a an engineering problem, a social engineering problem, a, a, um, you know, even a detective work problem because you have to try and talk to people who have been limited, talk to people who haven't been limited, and sort of put all the pieces together. So I, I have a ton of respect for the people out there who have used their knowledge and their connections to build up an understanding of what it takes to get limited at each individual book. Um, it's something that, that I rely on my own contacts to help me with because it's not something that I know a ton about myself. Yeah, there's occasional books where you actually meet the people on gambling Twitter uh, or Bed Bash or other functions. So you could send the people a message, be like, listen, here's what I want to do. Um, just let me know if it's too much or if they make a really bad mistake on something else, I'll alert them. Like there is one sports book that in college football in a game with a total of 52 and a half and a spread of 11 had a separate margin market called margin of victory. And they set the margin of victory at 52 and a half over under. And the under was plus plus one thirty-five. Oops. So I just direct message the guy on Twitter. I'm like, Hey, uh, I think you got it wrong. And he's like, oh no. And I'm like, read it again. It says margin of victory. It doesn't say total. Like That's they very... price it like an alt total rather than a margin of victory market. That's very kind of you. And my but... account is still alive there. So that's good. You're a humanitarian. That's what you are, Kevin. What I did find out was that when I met these people in person uh, and they congratulated me on a winning bet that um, I show up on their ticker whenever I make a bet. <laughs> Well, co contacts are super important. And I have to say, Bet Bash, I, I missed the first one, um, but I went to the second one in, in Vegas uh, this April, and it was the absolute time of my life. Like just being in the same room with all these people, you know, everyone from absolute legends of the game to, to you know, people who work for books, to people who are starting up uh, their own companies, to, to professional bettors, to amateur bettors, to just you know, enthusiasts who had, who had great questions and, and it was just, it was just so great. Twitter's great, but once you're, you're, when you're meeting these people in person um, and having drinks with them and playing blackjack with them, it was just a, it was an amazing time. So I hope I get to go again. Hope I get to see you there again. Uh, definitely. I'll never miss bed bash in the world. Even if it's another damn wedding I get invited to, I'm skipping the wedding, going to bed bash. <laughs> it is that invaluable. Uh, not just because I met you. Uh, but that's one of the reasons. That's a big part of it, though, right? Now, actually, my introduction to you was I was interviewing for a job with the dark side um, as a um, trader. And part of the assignment before getting interview 
was they had me price markets for futures. So I was pricing these future markets and I finally get to the interview and the guy says, oh, I read your work and it reminds me of something I read from Plus EV Analytics. Oh, really? Says, yeah, you got name dropped by a bookmaker in an interview. Hope it wasn't DraftKings. It was not. The person did used to work for DraftKings though. And he said, yeah, Plus EV Analytics had this great article about baseball futures for the COVID shortened season and how there's more variance because there's fewer games. Now, even though you've written that article pretty recently, it doesn't seem like on certain markets that books have adjusted on futures for pricing for the variance. What sort of edges have you found on futures on these alternate markets or other markets where you bet you're betting on the tail end of a result rather than median? Yeah, so the, the the baseball COVID season, I guess, is a bit of a claim to fame of mine, and it was it, it was a super unique thing that that's never happened before, and probably never going to happen again. Because you get a shortened season, you get these specific props where they're asking about how many home runs, RBIs, stolen bases, whatever is the league leader going to have. So you're looking at the distribution of a maximum of a set of values, and there's certain behaviors, you know, around that once you lower your sample size that you really have to be on the ball to be able to price that stuff uh, correctly. So that was a one shot. You know, it, was, it was great. It was fun. We won all the bets. My followers won a ton of money. You know, it, was, uh, it, 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 was, it was lots of fun. Um, other than that, I do think there are situations, not as many as there used to be, where uh, books are underestimating the variance and, and so for some of these tail events. Um, something like, you know, will a team go 17 and 0? Will a team go 0 and 17? Those are bad examples because people like to bet the the yes. So they 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 shade the odds already against the yes so much that even if they're underestimating the variance, you're still not going to have a good bet there. But there are other examples, um, NFL season win, alt numbers, things like that, but where um and I'm I'm gonna try not to get too nuanced and wonky about this because this is not a math podcast, but um, there, there are certain assumptions that you make about the distribution, the probability distribution of a set of outcomes that requires you to know something that is impossible to know. And you say, well, I'm going to estimate this based on past data. And that's works and that's fine. And that's going to work great for the center of the distribution. It's going to work fine for the average, usually fine for the median, all good. But when you get into the more extreme events, um, what we call parameter uncertainty, the fact that, well, we don't know that Joe Blow is a 300 hitter just because he's hit 300, you know, over his last 200 bats, you know, he could be a 330 hitter who's gotten unlucky or a 270 hitter who's gotten lucky and we don't know. Um, a lot of that lack of knowledge is not correctly priced in to some of these markets. So you can get extreme, uh, you know, outliers that are sometimes underpriced. So my, my rule of thumb when it comes to parameter uncertainty is the more uncertainty there is about the sort of unwritten rules of what this distribution is, the more plus money and large plus money bets you should be inclined to take. Um, because the plus money is going to be where you're out in the tails, the, the you know, unlikely events that are going to be uh, that are going to be underpriced. If you're taking the big minus money, then you're on the wrong side of that, where where you are, you know, you're kind of betting against the, these outliers. So the the more un the more uncertainty there is in the in the, the sort of hidden rules of probability that govern something, the more inclined you want to be to take plus money bets and large plus money bets. Yeah, I 
like I, I look at the, um, I definitely look at the range of outcomes and uncertainty, especially when doing politics betting. Uh, because for American politics, for example, you have certain states that are hyper-polarized where the result on election day is not going to stray that far from the mean. But you have other swing states where you have more factors and variables going on where you could have a result on the tail end. And I love doing that for the margin of victory markets, especially on election day itself, waiting for the exit polls to come out. And as soon as it comes out, uh, betting anything close to the median on the, the margin of victory markets. Yeah, political betting, it's not something I've done a lot of myself, but I can see how it would have a ton of parameter uncertainty in there because you can look at the, you know, the 538 average of polls and it will say you know, Biden is, is getting 52% of the votes, but there is all kinds of polling error, polling bias that can creep into a lot of this information that can make the more extreme outcomes um, more likely than a naive reading of these poll numbers might suggest. Yeah, and especially these international elections too, uh, because I would say the international voters, especially Canada, for example, are more elastic, where you have multiple parties and you don't have elections as often. Yeah, you definitely get more variance with a multi-party system and a two-party system, just more, more ways the polling can be wrong, more ways unexpected things can happen. You know, you, there's any given election, there's only two parties with a real chance of actually winning the thing. But if you're betting on number of, number of seats won or percentage of the popular vote or all kinds of obscure stuff like that, then, then for sure, um, the more candidates you have, the more opportunities you're going to have to find value in those. those People kept events. betting on the liberals uh, to gain seats or to have a majority. And I was always skeptical of that happening because uh, the few inelastic areas of Canada uh, were where the conservatives were the strongest, Alberta, Saskatchewan, Manitoba. And I wasn't convinced that those areas were going to swing enough for the liberals to get enough seats and have a majority. Yeah, listen, you, you, you sitting there in New Jersey have probably analyzed Canadian politics in more detail than I ever have. It's just not something that, that I'm I've all ever... about C-SPAN. Well, I guess. I'll but do German just... elections, UK elections. <laughs> I, I find it hard to get good data on, on elections. So I, I think it's not a great match for my particular skill set. And I think just politics in general also just bugs the hell out of me. I think it just it's just so gross and fake. So I have enough stress in my life already without getting uh, getting deep into politics. I would argue the sports are deep and fake too. <laughs> That's true. Depends what you ask. I mean, almost all the time I see these athletes on TV that I'm betting on, and they just seem insufferable. <laughs> well, I, I have no response to that. So now, you, like, you, you, you example, it's like, I don't even for the Cleveland Browns for their futures or whatever, taking into account what Deshaun Watson does. I mean, yeah, he's that... awful, but look at the other awful people out there that we don't know about. Yeah. And I think that there is something to be said for that. Cause I, I think that the, the level of uncertainty varies from team to team. Um, when you look at which teams have more injury prone um, players at, at key positions, you know, Tom Brady is what, 44 now, 45, however old he is. Like no matter how great he is, just a human body is more prone to injury at that age. So, you know, they're, they're, they're more exposed to adverse events that might affect their season win total, the chance of making the playoffs, et cetera. Versus if you have kind of a deeper team 
with younger, not rookies because they have their own variants in them, but you know, experienced but younger players. Not a lot of injury history. You kind of it's not one of those stars and scrubs situations. It's a deep team. You kind of know what you're getting. You would at least in theory have less variance around that team's outcomes um, compared to to a team with a small number of injury prone stars. Yes, certainly. That's a that's a good way of looking at injuries, not just for football, but for any sport. Like if it's basketball, if you have a team that's pretty balanced, the injury is not going to hit them as hard as if the Lakers lose Anthony Davis. I would say LeBron, but I don't know how much of an impact that would have right now. Is it still an if situation on Anthony Davis? I think he's already hurt. Season the preseason's barely started. So I yeah, that's, that's a good example. I haven't that's even been following. Um you know, but certainly like Canadian football, for example, is another great, uh, great example because people, I think, overreact the quarterback injury news too much in the CFL because outside of the BC Lions quarterback, most of the backups aren't that much worse than the starter. Yeah. And the people who are making that assessment are probably coming from a, a, an NFL background where you have these guys getting paid you know, $30 million dollars. And if they get injured, the next best guy is, is way, way down the list. But in the CFL, a lot of these guys, like, they, they get paid so little, they have to take day jobs as, as you know plumbers and construction workers in the offseason. So, you know, a, a starting quarterback to a backup quarterback, um, I agree with you, is probably not the same level of drop off um, that you would get in the NFL. And I, 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 I hear you that that betters just might might get the wrong impression of that because they're used to a world where stars matter a lot places like the cfl you know they they probably don't as much so there you go that's another another 90 degree angle and of course the injury news in the cfl looking to see which national players are hurt because teams have to have a certain number of canadian nationals on the field they do and those uh, are usually like the offensive linemen or the defensive linemen absolutely some fun cfl trivia for uh, for your listeners today I mean, it's useful if you're not betting CFL because you get to learn about how each sport's intricacies affect the line more than others. Well, they used to, on the, on the broadcast, I don't know if they still do this, but they used to call them imports and non-imports, which I think is a, a little bit dehumanizing, but uh, you know, fun way to, to, to talk about who meets the quota of, of a number of Canadians on the team because that absolutely is a thing that exists in the CFL. Now, like another sport I can think of where the injury news really matters uh, that obviously most people aren't going to focus on is in Asian baseball. Um, each team can only have a certain amount of foreign players on the field or even on the af- active roster. And if one of them gets hurt, it can make a big difference, especially in Korea, where usually a team will have one international player in a position role. And most of the time, um, the international players are pitchers. But if you have an international player in the lineup getting hurt, that can really affect the team. See, I didn't even know that. I'm, I'm learning a lot here today about uh, Asian baseball, which is not something that I've ever really dabbled too much in. So thank you. I mean, no, <laughs> I like dabbling in it because no one's dabbling in it. Well, good for you. That's it. You find an angle that, that that's that's unique to you. So you have this sports betting class that you teach um, with EV Analytics. Uh Harry Crane is involved. A bunch of other great people are involved. What does these, what do these classes consist of and how much do they typically cost? So what these, this is a, a, an online school called analytics.bet started by Harry Crane and a couple of other guys. Harry Crane is a professor of 
statistics. And what they are doing is they are offering university quality education in topics related to sports betting, which is something that I think is a, a niche in the market that was really unfilled up until then. There was all kinds of content out there um, of variable quality, but it didn't really have the level of, of analytical rigor around it, except for kind of random blogs here and there. And, and what they've done at analytics.bet is they put it together into courses um, there are I think five or six different courses now in their uh, in their curriculum. Mine is called the Art of Sports Betting Analytics, which is a bit of a weird term um, because you know there's art and there's science and everyone thinks they're different, but there's actually more art in science and more science in art than than, than people uh, tend to realize. And my class, the Art of Sports Betting Analytics, is mostly about again back to this problem of small data. And, and credibility theory and, and what to do with sample sizes that are meaningful, but too small to be relied upon completely. And we get into um, a field called Bayesian inference, which is a, a real kind of passion of, of mine. And yeah, we ran the, 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 first, uh, the first cohort of live classes earlier this year. We had, I think, about 50 students signed up. Um, it's not cheap. Uh, and I, I don't want to quote the exact price because I, I haven't checked it in a while and I don't want to give any wrong information. Um, so go to analytics.bet and check out the, the courses and the prices. Um, they, they are probably for um, either serious bettors or wealthy enthusiasts because they, it isn't the kind of thing that a, a recreational better would, would, uh, would want to put that kind of money uh, down on. But they are valuable not just my classes, but, but Harry's and all the classes, you know, if, if you want to learn how to be a good better and a good betting analyst with the same kind of quality of education that one might learn how to be, you know, a lawyer or a doctor or an actuary, you know, this is the kind of thing that, that, that we are dealing with here. Has anybody uh, tried to get college credit for taking your courses? Not, not that I know of. I'd be happy to write a, a letter of reference for anyone who needs that. But I, I don't think the, uh, the, the probably the people who run these colleges would have the same kind of attitude as the the people in my industry when I tell them I went to be a professional better for five years. So it, it it still might be a little bit stigmatized and, and frowned upon. But uh, if anybody wants to try, I'm, I'm happy to do what I can to help. I am um, also in the midst of building a, a smaller and less expensive course on Excel for sports better. So how to use some of the tools that I find most useful in Excel, um, pivot tables, solvers, uh, VBA, to really supercharge your betting analysis. I'm, I'm a little uh, behind schedule on, on that one just because uh, I've, I've got so many things going on, but it, I, I am working on it and I will deliver it uh, shortly. And that'll be available at analytics.bet as well. I'm willing to bet that my alma mater, SUNY Empire State College, which is part of the state of New York university system, would have given me credit for a sports betting uh, college level class. Listen, if there's any way that, that this results in me being able to call myself a professor, then uh, you know, let, let me know who I have to call or what letters I have to write because I would be interested in that. I mean, they gave me credit for running for office and winning uh, because I wrote a paper about how that's college level experience. So I got almost a year's worth. School of hard knocks is better than any college, right? So I guess dropping out of school to pursue a 
part-time political career wasn't a complete loser for me. No, look where you are now. Yeah, I switched from being an elected official to now betting on sports. What do you And know? being the host of 90 Degrees. That's right. The host of 90 Degrees. Who are your favorite gambling Twitter follows? Oh, gambling Twitter is a fun space. There, there's, uh, you know, there's the, there's the whole spectrum of, of, of people uh, from, from nice to not so nice, from smart to not so smart. Uh, etc. But I think it can be a really great source, not only of information, um, and not only of community, but also of entertainment. Like there's some great follows, funny people. Um, you know, I'm, I'm not going to talk about the usual suspects, your, your Rufus, Captain Jack, Spanky. I assume most or all of your listeners already know who these people are and already follow them, which they should. Um, but some people that, that I uh, enjoy a lot on Twitter who maybe are not as well-known in our community. Um, I mentioned the Banfield group off the top. They're relatively new on the scene um, from Toronto. One of them is actually living in Vegas for the, the football season. They put out a podcast called Always Betting, which is fantastic. Not only is it sharp, but it's also really funny, good entertainment, great listen. Um, the Deep Dive podcast is also great. So Andy Molitor and Drew Dinsick. Again, there are lots of sharp people up there. There are lots of entertaining people up there, but not many are both sharp and entertaining. I think Andy and Drew definitely fit that bill. Um, and then RX Gamble, Gina Fiore, who's a, a friend of mine. And she has this really cool um, Twitter space, but also a blog. Um, and it's a great read. She She's one of a relatively small number of intelligent female voices in the space i love reading her stuff she's super cool she kind of has this uh a small number of intelligent female voices yes there are lots of female voices but some more intelligent than others i would say i'm not going to name any names but uh gina's a great follow she has kind of this dark comedy gen x kind of vibe that i really relate to and i really dig um and uh, definitely recommend checking her out yeah and she was at the um I'm not going to say which course, but she was at one of the seminars at BetStamp. I mean, at BetBash. Yes, she was. All right. Any last words you have for our audience today? No, just thanks for listening. Uh, you've been a great host, Kevin. Great chatting with you and uh, happy to come on again anytime. It was fantastic having you on. I'm new to sports betting podcasting. You're only episode number three. Uh, but already the bar is set pretty high. So I look forward to our future episodes and seeing what other great articles you're pumping out for the hammer or other outlets. I look forward to listening to 90 degrees. Yeah.